Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. When Aaron Coet, a Southington High School student, learned about the stark spike in violence against the Asian American and Pacific Islander, or AAPI community, he, she sought out opportunities to study the history of discrimination and to d- diversify her source material. Garrett Griffin Jr., a New Haven social studies teacher, noticed his students were treading lightly around topics like ancestry and slavery. So he set out to learn more about the rich accomplishments in African history that are often overlooked. Aaron and Garrett are both Fund for Teachers Fellows, a grant program supporting teachers K-12, helping them pursue professional learning opportunities outside the classroom. This hour, we'll hear from them, two of nearly 900 Fund for Teachers Fellows from Connecticut. Plus, the folks fielding proposals for uh, Fund for Teachers discuss the increasing importance of culturally sustaining professional development. Joining us first on Zoom is Garrett Griffin Jr., a sixth grade teacher at East Rock School. Thanks so much for joining us, Garrett. Thank you for having me. So what inspired you to apply to the Fund for Teachers Fellowship? So what inspired me to apply? I, myself and two other teachers uh, who are uh, Raina Walters and Kurt Zimmerman, we were uh, discussing um, some of the things that we were noticing in our classroom. And I'll start by saying that when I decided to get into the teaching profession, I I met both of these fellow teachers um, at our old school. Um, So we kept in contact. We've since um, changed schools, but we kept in contact. And we were just discussing some of the things that we were seeing. And basically, when it came to the conversations of ancestry, and I also will say this, I work in the inner city. So I have a primarily I teach a black and brown students, when it came to the discussions of our ancestry, um, particularly my black students, they were, uh, it was a conversation that was pretty awkward um, because oftentimes when we talk about um, our ancestry, uh, we think back to slavery. And while that was a really, uh, while that was a really important time and, and, and it's, it, it should be discussed, um, it wasn't the origin of our history. So we wanted to dis- we, we wanted to go on a journey um, and find out how to have these courageous conversations in our classroom um, with our black and brown students. And so we did, we, we stumbled across, one, one night we were talking and we stumbled across um, the Funds for Teachers um, grant application. And so collectively we applied. And how did that inform you in terms of where you wanted to travel and where did you end up traveling to? Um, what we did was, is how did that, um, I, 
or just how how did that um, impact your your decisions in terms of where would you like to travel and what did you want to bring back to the classroom? I got you. I think I think we wrote the grant first. Like I think we just wrote the grant, and then as we were writing, we 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 started to we we knew that we had like we knew we had to go to Washington D.C. to the Smithsonian. Um, Museum, the African American Museum. Um, we knew we wanted to go to Whitney Plantation in New Orleans. Um, as we were doing more research, we found out that right here in Connecticut there was a UNESCO site, um, and we met a wonderful uh, woman, Debbie Shapiro, who actually commissioned um, that site, the, the the marker, the UNESCO marker, um, because. Right in this state, there's uh, roots uh, for slavery. So there were some things that we like. We knew we knew we wanted to go to D.C. Uh, we knew we wanted to go to Whitney Plantation, and then along uh, that journey, we expanded um, and we added some other places. And tell us about the Connecticut stop. I mean, it, it's not just a local site; it's local history. And I know that's not the emphasis for the fellowship per se. But was that did that add an extra level of importance for you? And what did you bring back for your students? Certainly, the Connecticut stop was fascinating, um, and we again stumbled upon that. We were doing some research. We found a woman by the name of Debbie Shapiro, and I believe she's associated with the Historical Society in Middletown. Um, but we we reached out to her. We we read an article how she, um, the work it took for her to commission a UNESCO marker. Um, Middletown has a, a history. Um, they were actually a major slave hub um, in the state of Connecticut. And Middletown, if any if anybody has ever been to Middletown, they have a beautiful waterfront. That waterfront was where um, slave ships would come in and they would have a trading post right at the uh, right at the shore right there. Um, so right at the uh, port, excuse me. Um, so Middletown has a rich history. Uh, Miss Shapiro, she, she researched that history along with uh, some of her colleagues. They researched that history and they wrote up, uh, they compelled uh, a marker to be erected there, um, a UNESCO marker. So we went there, we, we interviewed with her and another professor from Wesleyan. And it was just fascinating um, to just learn of the history, um, the families, the prominent African-American families um, that lived in Middletown as a result of, because um, eventually slavery was abolished. And so out of that came some prominent African-American families and they migrated all across the state. It was just a fascinating, uh, fascinating history. Love a good stumble. And I just want to mention that images from your fellowship are on our website at cdpublic.org slash where we live. And can you touch on what did you bring back, uh, Garrett, whether it's literal source material for students or yourself in general? What I what I I think what I brought back was experiences, ex stories, um, stories to discuss in the classroom to empower my students. Um, I remember just being in the classroom when I was younger. I, I my parents moved me from Bridgeport to Naugatuck, which at the time was it was a predominantly white classroom. And I remember um, when we would talk about or, or when we would talk about the civil rights movement or or slavery. And this is my perception, but it would feel like my peers would be just staring at me as I was one of the only two um, African Americans in the class. And it felt a little bit awkward. awkward. And I noticed that 
my students also feel that way when we start to refer to historical uh, events. And so I just, I, it was, it was uh, empowering to bring back these stories um, so that I can share with my students. I think it was really stark that you mentioned when you think about the history, people tend to link it directly to slavery. And you mentioned it's awkward. It's an awkward conversation to have. And so thinking about the kind of knowledge gap that you saw or the discomfort that you observe in the classroom that inspired you to apply for this fellowship, how has that changed? For me, how for me, it's changed because. Uh, well, let me to, at Whitney Plantation, um, one of the things that just stood out to me and Whitney Plantation is a plantation it's in New Orleans. Um, they have the same layout it's a, it's a historical layout, but um, the stories are told on that plantation from the perspective of the actual enslaved people. So a lot of the, there was a, there was a memorial and they tried to document all of the uh, enslaved people that stepped foot on the plantation um, that were enslaved. Um, and so they, did a lot of research. They, they, they reached a lot of research went into it, but they, on the plaque on the memorial, they, they showed the actual skill sets of the slaves. And to me, that was really impactful because not often um, is when we talk about slavery, we don't usually highlight, like, um, we don't highlight the fact that the enslaved people, they were actually targeted for their skill, for their skill sets. So when they were, uh, when they were uh, capturing uh, the enslaved people in Africa, they were going to certain uh, regions for their particular skill sets, agriculture, um, their metalworking abilities, and the different uh, other skill sets. Um, and in fact, that uh, what was also interesting is in um, at the United States Capitol building, there's a statue that sits on top of the dome. And uh, the statue is called Freedom, and it's a, it was it's made out of metal. I think may, maybe copper. Please don't quote me. But that statue was commissioned. They, the the United States government went to a particular slave plantation and commissioned that particular slave plantation for their work because they were known for their metal work. And so they paid about twenty thousand dollars to have this statue erected on top of the Capitol building. It was. It was uh, sculpted, it was uh, produced by enslaved people because they knew that they had that skill set. So I was able to bring that, that, that I just found that fascinating because these were, the, they, the, when we talk about enslaved people, these were individuals, these were people who had skills, who, who had families and things and they were captured. Um, so I was able to pull some of those stories out and bring it back. I mean, I find it fascinating too. This the fact that you're that's you are adding to the knowledge for yourself and your students. And have you seen have you seen a change in the conversation with your students so far? I do see a change. I I, I mean, I, I I hold my students to a higher standard. I, like I want them to understand that no matter where you come from, what your background is, like you are you 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 can overcome your uh, situation. And I, 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 so I feel like that message, um, as I intertwine that with some of the stories um, that I've learned, I feel like it's empowering for students. 
And you experienced this with your co-fellows, Reina Walters and Kurt Zimmerman. How are you all sharing that resource right now? Uh, one of the things that we were we, we are so excited about is that after all of our uh, travels, uh, we were able to put together uh, anti-racist curriculum um, to, and, and it's it's available for free. Um, it's a free resource, but we were able to put together um, K to 12th grade um, anti-racist material so that we can teach, um, so that teachers can have resources in the classroom. Because again, this conversation is very difficult. It's, it's, it's very awkward to have. Um, and as a person of color, it's, it's difficult for me. So sometimes I know, it, I, I know it can be difficult for everybody that's in the classroom. So um, our materials, we hope, we pray that they're able to start that conversation and, and, per, and portray a different ethnic groups in a positive light. We talk about, uh, we, we were able to include materials uh, that highlight indigenous people. There's a lot of uh, indigenous people um, native to Connecticut. And, and a lot of times we don't talk about that. So we were really like, I, I am so proud of the curriculum that we have. I want to thank Garrett for sharing your experience with us. And I want to bring in uh, JHD, who is on the program team with Fund for Teachers. They're also the activists in residence at UConn's Asian and Asian American Studies Institute and a professional learning coordinator with the Connecticut Council for the Social Studies. Thanks so much for joining us, JHD. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, JHD, you've been listening to Garrett's experience. Can you talk about why his fellowship is such a good example of what the fund is seeking to support? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that Garrett started by talking about needs that he saw in his classroom, specifically around what students um, were experiencing and the fact that he engaged with fellow educators on um, creating a proposal that centers on students' needs and their needs as teachers in order to be better teachers um, in meeting those needs. I, I think that's, that's the essence of a really great Fund for Teachers proposal. And I know we are going to talk about this later on in the conversation, but I also want to just ask, you know, he's, you know, he listened to his students, he's listening to or realizing that there is a gap. Can you talk about how important it is for a teacher to be able to observe that and put that into action? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think, uh, so I was a teacher um, for 12 years as well. And I think that sometimes in teaching, because there are so many requirements and things that um, that are on your list of to do's, it can get it can get easy to get lost um, in that list and um, and think you're teaching content and forget that forget that what you're actually doing is teaching young people. Um, and so I think I think um, what Garrett said and, and what I believe about teaching and what is effective teaching um, really does need to center students, center their needs, center, um, center valuing them and, and affirming them in ways that sometimes in schools um, we find ourselves caught up in so many 
so many other things. Um, I think this is not just a school thing, right? This is like a life thing where we get caught up in so many things on the to-do list that we, we um, lose what is the actual reason we're doing the work that we're doing. We do get caught up in things, and I can't cannot imagine teachers, especially now, what they have to think about when they when they create the curriculum. And speaking of which, I think you're also involved with the anti-racist curriculum. Can you talk about that process a little bit in relations to what this fellowship can do for that? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm on um, the anti-racist teaching and learning. Um, we have we have a steering committee, um, and what. Garrett was talking about that he developed with his colleagues is it's it wasn't like spearheaded by the collective that I'm a part of. So it's really exciting when we hear about um, all the different people who are doing um, doing adjacent complementary work. Um, but I mean, the the collective, what we are what we are trying to do is find out all the ways that um, teachers and students um, are doing anti-racist um, work in their in their classrooms in their school communities and support that work. Um, so the, the projects are we have a multitude of projects that we're working on. Like each person on the steering committee is doing something slightly different right now. Um, do you want me to go into some of those things or? I think we can come back to that um, later on the okay. conversation. And I do want to mention that one of our listeners, Tom from Manchester, says, "I think everyone's history is important, and I try to do my part." People have contributed across the centuries, and this history is for white children as well. And so on that note, um, teachers are looking for so many different kind of source materials to bring back for their classrooms in terms of history, in terms of social studies. Um, JHD, can you tell us a bit about the timeline for applications and the fellowships? And this is for those who are listening who may want to apply. Sure. So the application for um, going... Um, the application for the 2023 Summer Fellowship is, it's already open. It opened in October. Um, doesn't matter when you submit your application. The, the deadline is January 19th. So you do have to get it in by that date, but you can start today. You can start um, in a couple weeks. Um, start date doesn't matter. Um, we also offer in Connecticut supports for people. So um, folks can definitely feel free to reach out to me um, or to my colleague Dale. We're the Connecticut regional team. Um, we're happy to help in any way that we can. There's tons of resources also on our website. We have an online learning center where you can actually look up previous fellowships um, and find out about where people went and what they were trying to learn and how they were implementing, um, how they were planning to implement their learning. Um, I think the exciting thing too is like this snippet that you all got um, from Garrett is just the start, right? Um, he went on this fellowship um, in the summer and is is still going to be, it's like the gift that keeps giving, right? So it's only November right now. I think that we talked to Garrett, and this is what I found with talking to fellows um, in June um, of 2023, or even in June of 2024, we'll see um, how much more has come from this learning opportunity that he designed with his, his team um, as, as the years go on in terms of how it's it's impacting what he's doing with students in his classroom. That sounds great. And I just want to remind our listeners that there's more information about the program on our website at ctpublic.org slash 
where we live. Uh, from Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Coming up, we dig deeper into the importance of culturally resonant material in the classroom and where Fun for Teachers comes in. Executive Director Karen Ekoff will join us. You can also join the conversation too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're learning about Fund for Teachers, a grant fellowship program that's backed nearly 900 teachers where we live. We spoke with the fund's executive director, Karen Ekoff, about the importance of professional learning opportunities for educators. Fund for Teachers is vital because as schools cut budgets, the experts in the building are the ones that are treated like the employees, if you will, that can, oh, we can cut costs here, but at the same time, the challenges that teachers face and have always faced are the really dramatic, important ones that make a difference as far as an educated populace going forward. We have a lot going on politically. We have a lot going on in society. And there are a lot of important lessons around those things that can be Um, incorporated and help students process through whatever subject that they're doing. We have always believed in the notion that the teacher as a professional knows best what they need in their classroom. They know what their students require and the challenges that they're facing. And so they tell us, this is what I need to do. And this is how I perceive um, my ability to do it if I have these resources and then we provide the resources. Back with us to discuss about the program is JHD Jenny Haikala-Diaz on the program team with Fun for Teachers. Thanks so much for coming back with us. Glad to be here. Um, You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, JHD, these proposals are very much teacher-driven. Can you explain why this is such an important and unique component to the fellowship? Yeah, I think the the what Karen just shared about um, how important it is for teachers to have choice and autonomy because they know their students, they know their students' needs, they know their needs as educators, 
um, a lot of professional development does, it's not that that's not considered, um, but oftentimes I remember as a teacher as well, um, you go to professional development for, for things where there is not um, necessarily choice or there's not necessarily customization or differentiation for you as a teacher. Um, and not to say you can't do some of that as, as a teacher after you attend a professional development, but having a, a hand in actually creating that learning experience, whether it's tapping into conferences that exist or you go and do your own field research um, and design your own learning experience all on your own. Um, that's, that's really essential because teachers are students too. Um, all educators were ongoing learners as well. Um, and it's just like in the classroom with students, um, the more you have choice and autonomy and um, the more you, you have say in what you're learning, um, the more it's going to be meaningful and relevant and purposeful for you. Can you confront the misconception that this is a teacher travel grant program? I mean, when we spoke with Executive Director Karen Eckhoff about how the fund's mission and even application parameters are really deliberate and thoughtful in this sense, can you take us through that? Yes, there's definitely a misconception that this is a travel grant. Um, and while the travel can be um, an important part because the grant does allow teachers to afford things um, that they wouldn't be able to afford on their salary. Um, the purpose is definitely not that. And I think even what Garrett said earlier about um, them going to Middletown, Connecticut, right? Not very far from New Haven um, and having a, a really incredible experience there as part of their larger fellowship learning experience. Just it demonstrates how um, you can't start with where are you going to go? You have to start with um, who are my students? What do they need? And what do I need to learn and how do I need to grow to meet these needs in a, in more better in better and more effective ways? Well, you mentioned Garrett. Um, that's Garrett Griffin Jr. who teaches at East Rock School. And um, he took his students to uh, various states around around the United States, but also, like you mentioned, a local area. Um, is there an emphasis on local history or is it more tailored to what the teachers are looking for in terms of um, what their classroom needs? Um, as Karen said earlier, we really trust that teachers know what they need. So um, in some cases, it is um, the fellowships that teachers design are um, local. And in other cases, teachers will go all the way around the globe. Um, so it really is, it's really dependent on what, what they need to learn. Um, and sometimes the, it involves going far away um, to learn those things. Um, like sometimes we have teachers who travel to parts of the world, um, but don't do it to, to go on vacation. They do it because they have students that are from um, that part of the world, or they have created a partnership with a school um, in that part of the world that relates to learning that they're doing with their students in their classroom. Um, so there's lots of reasons for teachers to stay close to home or to go far away. But again, um, the best fellowships um, are ones where it, it goes back to, um, goes back to centering students. Uh, Karen also mentioned that the fund is working to mentor fellows from underserved communities and also with fellows who, she said, more closely resemble the communities we're trying to reach. Uh, what have you observed in Connecticut on this front so far? 
Um, well, I've had a, had the privilege of being a part of, of that work um, in supporting specifically applicants of color, um, so teachers of color, who um, for many reasons, um, our, our systems in our society at large have um, not supported their survival and their thriving. Um, and so some of the, the work that to some people might seem very small, but is very significant that I've had, um, I've had the fortune of being a part of has been um, create, like working on creating this um, network of, of fellows of color supporting applicants of color. Um, and it's as simple as connecting people who don't know each other to talk about things that they want to learn and grow in um, as a teacher. So having a one hour Zoom session for teachers who have never met each other to get the chance to get together and support each other. Um, so that's what I've mostly been doing in that effort. Um, there's also been um, partnership building with different um, teacher of color organizations across the United States as well. Um, and, you know, we're, we're always thinking about both the individual as well as the systems. What are the things that we need to do on all these different levels to make sure that this is a, a fellowship that um, all teachers feel um, is, is actually for them? Um, so yes, we're, we're always, we're always looking for more ways and more ideas for how to implement that. And some of the best ideas that we've gotten have been from fellows themselves, right? About, um, what, what helped them, um, come up with their idea, um, what helped them get the application in and then what's helped them beyond, um, the actual summer fellowship to continue to grow and learn and, and build out their community and their network of, of people. Can you give us a sense of the wide variety of fellowships you've seen that are good examples of culturally sustaining professional learning? Sure. I mean, there's whether a, a fellow would label it as culturally sustaining teaching using that terminology or not. Again, if we're we're talking about the the fundamental um, thinking behind culturally sustaining teaching, it's that um, it's the the teaching is centered on the students who are in the classroom with you. Um, so you are ongoing um, working to build relationships with them, get to know them so that you're able to value and affirm them and what they bring to the classroom. So there, there's this deep connection between the, the family and community education that they um, are getting outside the school building um, with the education that they're um, that they're getting in the school building in a way that um, currently are, are many of our systems um, don't create that connection, right? They actually disconnect to those and, and value school or formal education as education with a big E as like, that's the education that we should value. Um, but that's not what CST or culturally sustaining teaching is about. Um, so just to provide a little bit of definition around it. Um, but I've seen so many, so many great examples. Um, I, an example would be, um, we had a group of educators, so this was in, in Connecticut, um, in Colorado, decide that they wanted to learn more about how their students got to Colorado. Um, they had a large number of students who come from Mexico. And part of their fellowship was actually taking the journey that their students had taken um, to get to their community in Colorado. So they actually took the bus um, that their students had taken and went and met with those their students' families 
um, in Mexico. Um, and so they had this opportunity over the summer to, to build um, deeper understanding of their students and their, their families and what mattered to them and their life experiences. So the level of empathy that they had an understanding of their students um, was, was you know, just massively increased um, by that experience. Um, another example is we've had teachers who have gone um, to do homestays and gone to um, visit um, places where their students and their families um, used to live, um, where they originated from. So um, we've had them go oftentimes also with the intention of um, developing stronger language skills um, in, in the language that uh, is the first language or the dominant language of students and their families. Um, and so we've had teachers do things like that. We've also had teachers, um, you know, talk to their students to find out more about them and design, design all kinds of different fellowships. I, I feel like the, the number and the types of fellowships, there's, there's so many, um, because I think too, one of the, um, one of the misunderstandings about culturally sustaining teaching is, um, often people think that it's it's boxed to race and ethnicity, um, and culture is uh, is much. It's a it's a much larger word than that, and so um, we. That's one thing that um, I know a person called in earlier from Manchester and and um, was mentioning that they have white students, and we have quite a few white students across Connecticut in schools. Um, so thinking about culture as um, in all the different intersections of identity that we need to consider, I think is really important when, when thinking about how do I center students and affirm them, we need to think about all the, the many identities and communities um, that our students are a part of um, when we're thinking about culture. Thank you so much for that thought. Um, we are going to go to a quick break, but coming up, we hear from a local teacher and fellow who was inspired to learn more about anti-AAPI discrimination. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Joining us now to discuss her experience with Fun for Teachers is Erin Coet, who teaches English at Southington High School. Thanks, Erin, for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. And still with us is JHD Jenny Hekla Diaz on the program team for Fun for Teachers. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Erin, what grades do you teach and how long have you been at Southington High? So I've been at Southington High. Uh, this is my sixth year here, um, although it's my 23rd year teaching. And um, here at Southington High School, I teach 10th and 12th grade. And what inspired you to apply for a fellowship? So I um, knew that I wanted to apply for a fellowship. My district um, has encouraged and supported us um, through the years. And I've had friends who've applied um, for the, um, the fellowship. Um, and so I knew I wanted to. And so then I started to think about, well, what direction do I want to go with this? And notice the, um, as you couldn't possibly not notice, the increase in violence against people from um, the AAPI community. 
So that's what got me started um, in planning to write the fellowship, write the grant. I think there were teachers in classrooms that noticed a, a conversation or a lack of conversation in regards of what you were just talking about. Um, was that something that you saw in the classroom and did that, did that impact your decision to apply? So, um, I, I mean, I, in some ways I saw it um, in the classroom um, and with some of my students, but more I was thinking about how I could grow as a teacher um, in order to bring that growth and understanding back to my students. Um, I thought about that when Garrett was talking and he was um, talking about um, that these conversations about race and culture are difficult to have. Um, I know that sometimes I feel nervous to have these conversations. I'm afraid to ask the wrong thing. I'm afraid to say the wrong thing. And so I wanted to make sure that I understood um, my students and I was able to have these conversations with them. And so, obviously, you got the fellow. And uh, tell us about your experience in California and Washington State. What did you do Great. there? Um, so, I yes, I, we went to California and we went to Washington. Um, and so we started in L.A. And uh, so a couple different things there. We started, um, we saw some evidence of um, the result, the um the reaction to the violence against people um, in terms of like memorials and things like that. There was a, in little Tokyo, there was this tree of hope where people were leaving messages of hope for um, the Japanese um, community. Um, And then we went to the Japanese American National Museum in LA. Um, And one of the the exhibits that really stood out to me the most was um, this exhibit called the interactive story file of this gentleman named Lawson Ichiro Sakai. Please forgive me if I've mispronounced that. Um, and he was, um, well, he served in the U.S. Army during World War II. And so what they did was they asked him a bunch of questions and recorded his answers. And then this was like a virtual um, exhibit of him responding to your questions. So you could ask him virtually anything. Um, this this wrote this video of him and he would respond to your question. So as I said, he um, served in the U.S. Army during the Second World War. But before that, he, his family, um, after um, the Pearl Harbor attack um, and the subsequent um, detention camps that were formed, they were um, forced to leave their home in California. They relocated for a time to Colorado. So they were not subject to incarceration, thankfully. But then that prompted him to join the army. And, um, and so he talks about his experience um, in terms of, of, of the Second World War and uh, the detention camps. He talks about his experience with that um, in these videos. It sounds like you had a really rich experience just being in L.A. Uh, so what did you take back to the classroom from that experience, um, whether it's literal source material or just experience to share with your students? So, I mean, I, I know a lot more about um, the history and um, of Asian Americans in um, the U.S. Um, and I um, and, and because of that, I feel like when I'm talking to students, when I'm sharing literature with them, um, I, I, I have more of a, a basis for it. Um, I just want to talk about a couple other places that we, I went. Can I talk about that? Go for it. 
Okay, great. We also went to in California to San Francisco to um, Angel Island to the immigration station there. Um, and I, um, one of the things that was really neat there, so the immigration station was this place where people, immigrants coming into the country came there. They were separated um, by nationality. And so any um, people who they thought were of Asian descent were sort of separated out. And um, they found these poems, these poems written in Chinese on the walls um, uh, from people in there writing about their experience. And I thought that was really, really neat. Um, I also went to the Wing Luke Museum in Seattle, um, and there was a great exhibit called Where Beauty Lies, and it was explored the history of um, beauty expectations in the Asian American community. Um, that really, very, really touched me. So in terms of what I'm doing this with this coming back, I was thinking um, about what um, Jenny said about um, this sort of being twofold. So I've gone there. I've learned all of this. I was able to buy a bunch of books um, to bring back to my students. And now comes like the second part, the, the next part of, of what we'll work on, which is trying to um, incorporate some of these books into um, and get the, these books into the hands of my students. So we're, I'm doing that right now via a book club I'm doing with a group of kids. I'm actually going into, I have two daughters. Um, one of my daughters came with me on this trip. But my younger daughter, who's in third grade, I'm going into her third grade classroom to teach a lesson um, on one of the picture, the picture books that I chose. I'm also hoping to work with, um, we have a Chinese club here at Southington High School, I'm hoping to work with them and the Multicultural Student Unit Union to work on a, a project regarding identity. Actually, on that note, um, really quickly, because we only have about a minute left, I just want to uh, bring the conversation back with JHD. Would you mind responding to what Erin has shared with us and why her fellowship is also a great example of what the fund offers? I mean, I think it goes to what I was saying about how to how to be how to continuously grow right as a teacher and, and think about what what do you need to um better work with your students. So, I mean, Aaron talked about that right there. And I think um, the fact that it really isn't just about this summer fellowship learning experience, but because um, we asked teachers to write in their proposal, what are you going to do with this, right? How are you going to implement it? And I'm sure um, in just about every teacher's case that I've ever seen who's become a fellow, uh, they don't come back and do exactly what they wrote in their proposal because they think of more and more opportunities to partner and grow and share what they have learned and experienced. Well, thank you so much to Erin Coet, who teaches English at Southington High School, and JHD, who is on the program team with Fun for Teachers. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>